Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rather gruesome anniversary, 50 years to the day since the uh, Tate-LaBianca murders that occurred in Southern California. Uh, and we know, of course, uh, subsequently, as we did learn uh, the, about the Manson family and about the just the horrific details of what went on uh, in those days. Well, there is a, a new book out right now that sheds some light on this. It's called Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s. Uh, Tom O'Neill is the author. Tom is an award-winning investigative journalist and uh, reporter. Uh, you've read some of his work in Us Magazine, Premier, New York, The Village Voice, and Details. And uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Tom, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Sure. Thank you for having me, Bill. I appreciate it. Why 50 years, Tom, 50 years later? I know this was a gruesome day, but why did we still maintain this this almost morbid fascination with the, with the Manson aura, the Manson family, and, and, and the, the, the horrific events that occurred that day? I think it was just kind of the sensation that was created by the group of uh, suspects in the murders when they turned out to be what appeared for all intents and purposes to be a bunch of flower children led by a hippie guru living on a commune, living communally. Uh, And the fact that once they actually were brought to trial, they were so frivolous about what they were accused of, singing and holding hands, and the women in particular skipping in and out of the courtroom every day and laughing about these horrific crimes that they had committed. And also when it emerged that Manson had ordered these girls, mostly young girls, to kill people just because he told them to, and that was enough and that was all it took. I think people still can't wrap their head around it. Um, If it had been a, a more kind of normal or, you know, a drug-related crime, something like that, I don't think it would be remembered all these years later, at least not discussed and, and written about and made movies about. I, I still remember the day the story broke. Uh, and uh, just to put this in context, I, I think most of us in North America uh, were still, I, I guess, j- just getting over the idea of Woodstock, the festival, which occurred just a couple of days before that, of course, in, in New York State. And and it was all about love, peace, and happiness, and 500,000 people getting together. And, and and all of a sudden, you hear this about this horrific event, which, you know, and as you say, what was characterized at that point, we didn't know who committed the murder at that time, but as a bunch of hippies, it, this was a punch to the gut to America, wasn't it, to actually have something this gruesome occur uh, just days after a quote-unquote peace festival. Well, actually, I hate to correct you, but the Woodstock Festival occurred about a week and a half after the murders. So, um, but nobody knew who committed them. So at the time, you know, uh, Woodstock occurred without any people there thinking this was people like them that had done it. That didn't happen until December when they were um, announced as suspects for the murders by the LAPD. But it was a culmination of things that summer also the Altamont concert did occur before. Yeah. And that's where the Hells Angels killed a couple people or killed a, a man right in front of the stage while the Rolling Stones were performing. And everything all of a sudden took a dark, started to take a darker turn. And it seemed like that all climaxed with the uh, horrific, horrific murders of Sharon Taylor house in, in Beverly Hills. How does a guy like 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 a Charles Manson do what he did? How does he attract people? How what, what was it? Was there a charisma there, Tom, that 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 attracted people like Squeaky Fromm and others to a, to a guy like Manson? Well, according to everyone who knew him, the charisma didn't exist prior to 1967. 
you know, all the people who had been interviewed by myself and others uh, found him to be really, really unremarkable. You know, he was very barely literate. He was kind of unassuming. And it wasn't until he just emerged in the hate after getting released from prison, grew his hair long, started taking LSD, that he developed this following of young people who were convinced that he was a cross between the resurrected Jesus Christ and the devil and and followed him without any, you know, doubt or hesitation and did whatever he said. I think uh, when you read the book, I have a whole chapter on uh, what Manson did to or, or how he programmed these people to get them to achieve, you know, to achieve that kind of devotion. And I don't think he did it alone. I think you'll see a case made in the book that's pretty solid for him having some help in learning how to, to create the technology to get these followers to do whatever he told them to. Tom, you worked on this book for a long, long time. Uh, I, I, I've heard almost 10 years. An awful lot of research. You've talked to a lot of people that were involved in this. Uh, there are some revelations in this book that uh, I know have even caught the attention of, of the Deputy District Attorney, uh, Stephen Kay, in Los Angeles, to suggest that maybe parts of this case should be reopened. Well, he didn't really want to. I, I mean, I forced him to say that. I said, you're admitting that what I'm showing you suggests that uh, your co-prosecutor, actually the lead prosecutor in the case, Vincent Bugliosi, who also wrote the famous book, Helter Skelter, about the case and the history of the family, but um, I'm showing you documents that prove that he actually, uh, you know, solicited perjury on the stand and hid evidence. And when I said to Stephen Kay, you know, what do I do with this kind of evidence, this kind of documentation? He said, you could take it to the, the head DA of Los Angeles, who was Steve Cooley when this interview took place. And I said, and what would he do? And Stephen didn't want to say it, but he said, well, he could look at it. And I go, and, and he goes, he would probably call habeas corpus which means vacate their uh, convictions and give them all new trials. Now, that interview with Stephen occurred in 2005, and I didn't take it to the DA. I thought the book was coming out a lot sooner. Uh, you know, the book's been out a month or so now. The DA is not going to do anything about it. They don't want this ever to be tried again, and I understand why. But I do wish that they would be a little bit more accountable for what was basically, and you'll see in the book, a fixed trial. The people that committed the murders definitely did it. You know, it was good that they went to prison. However, there was a lot of other stuff going on uh, that was covered up by the district attorney's office. Yeah, and let's talk to us about that intrigue, about about Manson's uh, interaction, Manson's connections in the community. Uh, and I guess that leads us, to, in, at least in part, to the discussion about uh, why Sharon Tate, why why that house, why that night? Uh, did, did the Manson family focus on that? Yeah, well, I mean, according to the official narrative presented by the prosecutor to the jury and then later in his book, the house was selected by Manson because it represented the white establishment. He'd been there when Terry Melcher, who was the son of Doris Day, lived there. Yeah. Terry at the, at the time was a very young, prominent rock and roll producer, and he actually, you know, didn't get there because of who his mother was. He was very talented, and he had this relationship with Manson that was presented as almost, you know, uh, it didn't really exist. He'd met him three times. The last two times were months before the murders. But what I found out was that they, uh, he was interacting with them long after the murders, including going out to Death Valley 
which is a significant trip from Los Angeles to the desert to meet with Manson. And what you find out is that the whole reason the house was chosen is now called into question because Manson didn't know who lived in it on August 8th, 1969. He just sent his followers there to kill everybody they encountered in the most horrific way possible and then to leave a sign um, implicating the Black Panthers. But uh, Terry Melcher was brought onto the stand to explain how they chose that house because of his prior connection to it, but now we know everything Terry said on the stand was a lie, and that's what caused Stephen Kay, the co-prosecutor, when he looked at the documents, to shake his head and say, I don't know what to believe about this case anymore. I thought I knew it inside out, and now I don't think I do. How would you characterize the relationship between uh, Melcher and and, and and Charles Manson, were they, were they friends? Uh, I, 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 uh, you know, did, did he fear Manson as, as he saw the way this guy was evolving? Well, that's it. Uh, Meltzer said he had no idea. I mean, officially on the stand and in a, a couple of interviews he did before he spoke to me, he said he had no idea Manson was capable of anything like violence or, or the murders that he ended up being convicted of, that he just thought he was a semi, you know, semi-talented musician with a bunch of girls, and he said he was like any other, they were like any other groups of hippies scattered all over California at the time, living communally. But what, that's not true. I have police reports showing that after the murders, Melcher went to see Manson first at the Spawn Ranch, was, which is where they lived outside of Los Angeles, this old kind of movie, movie ranch, which you'll see depicted in the Tarantino movie, if you go watch it. And in this scene described by the police in the report, Melcher fell down on his hands and knees and begged Charlie for forgiveness. And Charlie Manson said to Melcher, they all had to die. They were all pigs. Unfortunately, that police report wasn't signed, so I couldn't find the officer that made it, and there were no more details in that interview. Uh, also, the person who gave it to the cop had died, too, and both Melcher and Bugliosi denied to me that that scene that was described by that officer had ever occurred. But when you read the book, you'll see there were several other scenes just like that between Melcher and Manson. And I can't walk away definitively saying what Melcher was begging forgiveness for, but it does suggest that he did know who the murders were, or excuse me, the murderers were right after they occurred, and also that he was somehow implicated at the very least in feeling responsible for it if he was begging forgiveness. Uh, as a, a rock and roll fan of, of that era, uh, and you're right, Melcher is very successful and, uh, and the producer of a number of big hit records that people would recognize back in those days. And, and that's that's one of the things I found rather quizzical about this this whole situation, Tom. How would a guy like that be hanging out with a guy like Charles Manson? Well, you got to remember in the context of the time in 1969, it was a lot more of an open society in Los Angeles because something like this had never happened before. And it was the time of, you know, a lot of drug experimentation, LSD, free love. A lot of the social structures were falling apart, and people were letting other people into their worlds. And the reason, the way Manson got in was Dennis Wilson, the drummer for the Beach Boys, who happened to also be quite close to Terry, had picked up a couple of the Manson women hitchhiking and brought them back to his house. That night, uh, when uh, Wilson was out recording with his brothers, the band, the Beach Boys, he, he returned late and found the whole Manson family in an orgy at his house, and he let them stay and live with them there for three months. So 
that was Mezna's entree into kind of the Hollywood scene. That was actually the year before, in the summer of 68. He met Neil Young. Uh, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people who, as Neil Young said, not to me, but in, in an interview in the 70s, a lot more people knew Manson in Hollywood than would ever admit to it. That I find rather uh, interesting, to say the least, and and uh, and and to put that in that context of what was going on in Los Angeles at the time, you had celebrities that wanted to be cool and be part of that scene, I suppose, uh, and at the same time, sure. they, uh, they, people like Manson would take full advantage of that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Manson was clever at that. He knew how to, I guess you would call it network today, I don't know if they used that word then, uh, but he eventually wore out his welcome with everyone, but... You know, a lot of the reporting I did suggests, uh, and this is from files at the LAPD and the Sheriff's Department, that Manson was providing, uh, let's just say, very young women to these musicians and actors and Hollywood elite in exchange for access. You mentioned uh, Bugliosi just a few minutes ago. Of course, uh, Vincent Bugliosi was the lead prosecutor in the in the Manson trial, uh, and uh, subsequently, of course, wrote the book Helter Skelter about his uh, his recollections of that. Uh, with what you found out on this, and he became kind of a cult figure, uh, frankly, and uh, a celebrity, as, as it were, uh, not unlike what Rudy Giuliani did after he prosecuted a number of mob bosses in New York. It, it elevated his right, his right. status and. Uh, does, with what you found out and what you've included in the book here, Tom, does 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 this taint the whole process as far as Bugliosi is concerned? It sure does. I mean, you'll also see uh, it wasn't just Bugliosi, but his office, the DA's office in 1969, illegally planted one of their own prosecutors on the defense team to represent Susan Atkins. And I have notes from several meetings that occurred before the family was publicly identified as suspects in Tate LaBianca murders, where they said they needed to get her, Susan Atkins, under their control so she cooperate with them, and that the court-appointed defense attorney she had would never do that. And they made a plan and carried it out to go to the judge at her arraignment November 26th, which was still a week before they were identified, and he agreed to replace the court-appointed attorney who had his client's best interest at heart with a former prosecutor who had left the office a couple of years earlier, who did exactly what the prosecution wanted. Now, if Atkins was aware of that, that, you know, they were required to tell her that the judge was required to tell her that they didn't. And it was because of the sensationalism of this case that law enforcement got away with so much. And the Manson family was their own worst enemies by, you know, turning everything into a circus atmosphere so they could do all this stuff and nobody noticed. Unfortunately, I think the media was much more trusting at the time because Watergate hadn't happened yet. You know, that was 1974. Yeah. And from then on, journalists were much more skeptical of the official versions they were given by police, et cetera. But prior to that, people, I guess, were more trusting and nobody came along and really pushed to find out the story behind the story, which is what I did all those years later. And, you know, I don't think I could have done it anyway in a couple of years. And that's why it took, you know, it's embarrassing to say, but 20 years to produce this book. When the, the, we remember the shock, of course, of, when we found out about the massacre at the Tate LaBianca party that, that particular evening, was there something... That, that pointed them in the direction of the Manson family and the ranch? Uh, the, I, I know that there was some arrests uh, made, but most people were just released. It was four months later, I guess, wasn't it, uh, Tom? They actually uh, charged Manson himself with this. But uh, did, did somebody point them in that direction and say, this is this is where you should look? Yeah, yeah. Two of the uh, sheriff's investigators who were handling a homicide that had occurred 
about nine or ten days before uh, the Tate LaBianca murders in Topanga Canyon, which is not so far from the Spawn Ranch and also about a half hour from downtown Los Angeles. And it was a young musician, and he they learned he had been held captive for three days by a man and two women who turned out to be followers of Manson, tortured and finally murdered, and they left uh, bloody paw prints on the walls and slogans written in his blood saying, Death of, or, excuse me, Piggy. And allegedly that was to implicate Black Panthers in his murder. So when the Tate LaBianca murders happened and the Sheriff's Department, which had a different jurisdiction than the LAPD, learned that there was also blood writing and that the victims had been stabbed, you know, overkilled again and again and again. They went to the LAPD, joined the actual autopsies to tell them they thought they knew who committed these murders because they had just gotten a guy into custody and they were looking for his two accomplices and they knew that they lived at the Spawn Ranch. And they were told, back off, you know, this isn't your jurisdiction and we know who did this and it has nothing to do with hippies. What you'll see in my book is I don't believe anybody ever backed off. I think that, uh, I mean, they did back off, but they didn't stop knowing who did it and, and gathering information. Um, it's a very curious case. I, I believe, actually, that they were monitoring the Manson family. Well, I show it in the book. I have documents much more closely than anybody has ever admitted and, and have been keeping track of Manson's comings and goings from the Spawn Ranch, including up to and, and the, the day of the murders, you know, 50 years ago yesterday, they had an intelligence report that he was returning from the Bay Area with a large amount of narcotics that he planned to sell or distribute and a new runaway girl follower. And in fact, he returned from the Bay Area about 12 hours before. They were 12 hours too late in their surveillance that day. Um, and he was he did come with drugs and he did come with a new runaway girl that he picked up around... Um, the uh, Big Sur area. So the question that that raises is if they were surveilling them that closely, did they see the family members leave the ranch at 11, 11.30 August day to go out and commit the murders that they became infamous for? Uh, it's one of the most infamous uh, trials and, and murders, of course, in, in U.S. history. Um, and you'll get a much different approach to it, a much different perspective on it uh, in reading the book. The book's been out for about a month now, so it's and it's still available on the bookshelves there uh, at uh, just about many of the locations around here. Uh, Chaos is what it's called. Charles Manson, the CIA, and the secret history of the 60s. Tom O'Neill, Tom, thank you so much for the, the great work and for your dedication to this over all these years. And, oh. And I really thank appreciate the time today. On, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having I'll, I'll, I'll me. I'll wait for the right, sequel now. <laughs> the Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.